All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got a great event in store for you today. I'm Brian Love, Head of Depository Search for Banks and Credit Unions here at the Trevelyan Group. You know, we've heard so much discussion over the past few months about the impact that the pandemic has had on community banking and the way that executives have expedited their digital transformation strategies in response. There's been far less discussion on the topic of implementing digital strategies with talent. Thus, the topic of today's webinar is solving the digital riddle. How best to implement a digital strategy by shifting your institution's culture, integrating your team members, and developing and recruiting top talent. To help us solve that riddle, we've invited four distinguished panelists, each with unique perspectives on talent and culture. We appreciate their participation today and are honored to introduce them to you. First up, we have Patrick Sells, the Chief Innovation Officer at New York-based Quantic Bank. Patrick is focused on drawing a new generation of technology talent to the banking industry and elevating Quantic as a destination employer. He was recently recognized for digital innovation in banking, earning American Bankers 2020 Digital Banker of the Year Award, and was also named to Independent Bankers 40 Under 40 list for emerging community banking leaders in 2020. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Next, we have Jill Castilla, who leads Oklahoma-based Citizens Bank of Edmond as its president and CEO, as well as the chairwoman of its bank holding company. Uh, Jill transformed her once struggling institution into one of the most innovative community banks in the nation. Jill's numerous accolades include 2017 Community Banker of the Year by American Banker and Most Innovative CEOs in Banking by Bank Innovation. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Our next panelist is Jason Henricks, the CEO of Alloy Labs, which is a consortium of community and mid-sized banks working together to drive innovation and adopt technology. He co-hosts Breaking Banks, the largest fintech podcast in the world, and is chairman of Fintechs, a nonprofit growing the fintech cluster across the Midwest. Jason's a frequent speaker uh, on financial innovation. I've seen him at conferences. Um, he also speaks about regulation and compliance and also serves on several fintech advisory boards. Thanks for being here, Jason. Thanks, Brian. And then rounding our panel out is Ron McDaniel, from uh, Q2, he is the VP of Strategic Solutions for Q2 Open, I should say, uh, where he's focused and passionate about empowering community financial institutions with open banking strategies and products. He works with customers to fundamentally transform deposit and payment systems for the modern account holder through open technology and creating new pathways and customer journey. Rom's got 20 plus years of high tech experience, including 12 years uh, at senior roles at Hewlett-Packard. Welcome, Ron. Thank you. So before we dive into our conversation, just wanted to make a quick introduction to my firm, the Trevelyan Group, as well as my co-moderator, Steve Cohn. Um, so the Trevelyan Group is a nationwide executive search strategy and advisory boutique focusing heavily on depository institutions. For the past five years, I've been running Trevelyan's bank, banks and credit union practice and was previously a proud community banker myself in Pennsylvania for the 10 plus years prior. Steve Cohn runs our advisory division, TTG Align, and he's been in, in an executive search and talent advisory consultant 
for the financial services industry for 27 years. He studied industrial organizational psychology at the University of Illinois with his research focusing on assessment and leadership. And before I turn it over to Steve to, to get things started, I'll state that we've allotted about an hour here for our discussion. Also, I encourage our panelists to speak up at any time if you'd like to interject any thoughts on specific topics or questions. With that being said, Steve, take it away. Thanks, Brian. I know uh, industrial organizational psychology is a mouthful. It took me about you know two years in the program <laughs> before I could finally uh, say that without stuttering myself. So, um, and I appreciate the introduction. Uh, in recent conversations with all four of you, the topic of culture was prominently featured. So. To start things off, Jason, you've identified culture and maybe even more precisely mindset as a potential barrier to innovation. Describe a culture that you feel fosters innovation and a culture that hinders innovation. Um, you know, in all of our years of working with banks to drive innovation and you know, a reform banker myself, we find ourselves often in this search for the Holy Grail that it's the technology that's going to transform us, right? It's about picking the right vendor, the right start partner in a startup. And that's suddenly, you know, going to unlock all of this. And time and time again, you know, being on either the partner side or the startup side was just shocked that it actually wasn't so transformative and realized, you know, if this is consistently happening across partners and across uh, technologies, maybe the problem isn't the partnership or the technology, it's the what you do with it afterwards. And that's when we get into this idea of mindset where you have to be willing to do something new and inherent in doing something new, there's always risk that it isn't going to work. And let's face it as bankers, our job is often to manage risk. And by manage risk, we really try and completely mitigate the risk associated with it. And if we try and manage innovation in this idea of doing new things, like a core conversion, which is often what happens, you try and plan everything from beginning to end as if you know exactly what's gonna happen along the way. And that's the exact opposite of how innovation needs to be managed. So I'd point to the organizations that do it exceedingly well. I would you know, point to two of our Alloy Labs members who are on this panel, you know, both with Patrick and Jill and their banks where they're willing to be wrong at the very top of the organization. And that's very rare that you can point to a culture within a bank where the CEO has stood up and said, you know, one of these two statements, I don't know, but we're going to go figure it out together, which I've heard Jill say repeatedly. And then she has some great stories around it. Or two, I was wrong. We thought this, we went and tested it, and it didn't actually work out. I would say organizations that are unhealthy in their mindset when it comes to culture is when you hear people are afraid to express up that something isn't working or what their suspicions are. And they either double down on the effort to prove it out or worse, kick the can down the road. Let's just see how long we can keep the project going and hope something you know, changes along the way. And that reminds me of the conversation, Jill, that we had yesterday about going from failure is not an option to welcoming failure. It's kind of just, what Jason was saying. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about culture change and how it's driven innovation at your bank? 
Yeah, first I want to give a shout out to Rom. We are having our Q2 conversion today. So as I'm, I'm kind of multitasking, it's going exceptionally well. So we're thankful for that partnership. Yay. Um, we, um, I came to the bank 11 years ago when we were the lowest rating you could be in the CAMELS rating system. It was a turnaround. We had no capital um, to add to the bank. So the turnaround had to be done um, pretty scrappily. Um, and so the motto, I mean, our mantra then was failure is not an option. And then we get, we end up orchestrating the fastest turnaround in the nation without adding capital. And then um, that, then the, the light switched and I went from being this autocratic kind of leader that was, you know, with a whip, um, you know, kind of saying this is what's right, wrong, don't steal, don't cheat, this is how we do things in order to run a, a, a bank that can be respectable. Um, and then it was the switch and um, flip to failure um, is not is not an option to now it's like, oh, we welcome failure. You know, now I'm this collaborative leader. You can totally trust that I'm not going to whip you if we make a mistake. And we went from preaching accuracy to now and um, the accuracy is required if we're talking about a customer's account. But when it talks about when we're talking about exploring products or services or experimenting, that we didn't necessarily need to be accurate, that we could have some failures and some mistakes. And I had to model that myself to where I would make a mistake and they would see that I, you know, that, I, that everything was okay. And then if someone else made a mistake, we talked about it and they could see that they weren't, you know, shunned to some dungeon somewhere. And so, but the culture take change took so much time and was much harder than the bank turnaround, um, getting trust restored, um, getting a collaborative spirit in place. We went from 125 employees to 55, just through attrition. And to be able to then develop a team that is not checklist oriented, but is, um, is a team that's focused on building processes to be better and, and to be to where everyone really has an equal voice at the table. Um, it started initially, we did a, we kicked it off with a Gangnam style video. And I love watching that video because I can see our culture just kind of changing in the silliness of that video. And it was a great Kickstarter to some of the changes that we made. Selecting Q2 was a collaborative effort, a cross-functional team decision in which we all had a vote as to what direction to go. And, and they could see that there really wasn't like a ruling party, that this is something that we were all trying to, to move in progress together. It also helps a lot. We have an employee stock ownership plan that owns and um, is the largest shareholder of our bank. So we have this collective purpose to develop, to build wealth of our, within our team, but to also really be there for our community so that we feel like we're a valued member of the community individually as citizens of the community. And so shifting that to being more purpose oriented really helped elevate our culture. But we also had a disconnect. It was the public and our external views of the bank were quickly accepted as being now this is the new norm. Citizens is a, is a collaborative space. It is a customer oriented um, institution and talent was drawn to us. But it took a lot longer internally for us to believe our own story, to believe that this is really happening. And, and that's taken a really long time. It's taken some turnover. It's taken a ridiculous consistency. Um, but it is what paves the way to be able to um, innovate and, and collaborate with other people that are innovative. Once you're able to really live that truth, you start um, attracting like-minded individuals. We just filed for our first patent three months ago. Again, 55 team members, one location. And we basically did like a small business ATM on our own. Um, we collaborated with Mark Cuban on two different projects. And, um, and all of that's been just because the culture attracts both the talent as well as like-minded individuals that wanna collaborate with you. Thanks for that. Uh 
Jill. That was that was great. Uh, I, I'd like to ask Patrick a question, a related question. Jill, you spoke about turnover. You spoke about recruiting and turnover and 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 culture. And Patrick, you have said before to us that you, I mean, you shared a, a colorful farming metaphor with us recently. You said culture is the soil and too many banks are throwing technology uh, on seeds that will not allow growth. Uh, you've told us a bit about how you've made Quantic more agile in recruiting, uh, such as offering paid leave. How can you elaborate a little bit more on what makes a culture fertile for innovation and how you can achieve that through talent management? Yeah, so I think I grew up in the cornfields of Indiana and would watch farmers every year, you know, put seeds down and some fields would seem to take really well and other fields didn't. And I think being new into the industry over the last couple of years, I've been asked by a lot of bankers or here at conferences, what's the new technology that I need that's gonna fix my bank or make my bank innovative or stay relevant? And it's almost like the technology is the seeds, right? And we keep thinking we just need to throw more seeds down, but the seeds aren't taking. And we're seeing innovation happen all around us as banks, I think. And it's not because there's a lack of seeds or good technology. I think that's why so many non-banks are getting into consumers' financial lives. I think the problem is the soil or the bank's culture isn't ripe to accept seeds. And so, you know, when we think about that from a cultural standpoint, um, I think it's around you know, how we pay people, the benefits, the mission, vision, and values of banks. Um, how do you make it a place where people want to work? Because I think looking back you know, eight years ago, my generation, as we were coming out of college, no one wanted to go work at a community bank. That was not a sexy job, right? You went somewhere else, and those companies are the ones that are now using all of this technology. And so I think as an industry, we have to figure out how do we flip that reputation and make you know, banking sexy again, to use Justin Timberlake's song. Um, and so um, <clears throat> that's been a, you know, a big challenge for us. And, you know, similar to actually what Jill was talking about, we developed four core values along the way that are supposed to be uniquely different than I think other banks. And one of those is the idea of progress, not perfection. And I think in general, we're all wired to think about perfection. And especially as a bank or a credit union, you have to be perfect in many ways, but that will freeze up the culture to be unable to make decisions. And so it's not about whether something was right or even if we made a mistake, it's that can our focus be and that we wanna be in a constant state of progress, that the destination is not perfection, it is that state of progress. That's an example to Jill's point, you know, the team all around starts to innovate and think differently when you as a, can culturally remove that type of environment um, or that, type, that aspect from your culture. Thanks, Patrick. Um, Rom, I wanted to get you involved in this conversation around culture. We spoke uh, not too long ago, and you mentioned that um, uh, culture change needs, change needs to be pervasive in innovative organizations. Uh, for example, you observed that for innovation to happen, risk and compliance professionals need to be looking for solutions and not simply uh, naysaying. Jason and kind of touched on that a little bit ago. Can you tell us more about the role that risk and compliance can play in innovation and how to get the right people in place? Well, so, so Brian, I appreciate you calling on me because I was in violent agreement with, with all these guys and it was hard for me to bite my tongue uh, to this point, but I was kind of waiting to, for Jill to say how the Q2 conversion was going first. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, you know, maybe, I, maybe the best way to frame my answer here is to extend uh, maybe a little bit of what Jason and, and Jill and Patrick all said. 
Um, first, I do think it starts at the top. Second, I do think a solution mindset is required. Um, third, I think that the, the uh, honest um, uh, you know, ideas about failure in the organization are really important. But here's the deal. After, if I have learned anything in two and a half decades, or really my whole life as a second generation technology professional about innovation, it's that, it's that what all innovators have that non-innovators don't, and typically banks don't, is the ability to fail fast and fail cheap. And, you know, Patrick said something in the kind of the chat between the panelists, I'm sorry, Jason did, I keep doing that, sorry, Jason, about that 70% of digital banking initiatives produced 0% ROI and the thoughts on why. Fundamentally, that's my thought on why, because they weren't designed to fail, right? So let's talk about failure in a couple of different ways. When I go into organizations, I think it's really easy for people to point the finger at their risk and compliance people the same way that they point the finger at their vendors. Because too often, the vendor's answer is buy more stuff, buy this technology stack that's going to solve all your problems. Or you say, well, we can't do anything because the compliance people say no or the risk people say no. I really think it's a question of whether or not the compliance people have an innovation mindset and a solutions mindset. And that's not just a cliche, that actually means something. And I'll give you an example. For risk and compliance people to talk about the space that I play in, which is really about facilitating through technology the partnership between banks and credit unions and fintechs that they want to partner with, it's very easy for the default position to say, we can't do that partnership because we can't give a fintech access to our core admin controls, or we can't figure out a way to get terms and conditions properly accepted so that somebody can open an account, or we can't do this or we can't do that. You know, one of the things that I've been very impressed with in working with two members of the Alloy Labs Alliance, NBKC and, um, and Lincoln Savings Bank, is that both of them have taken a risk and compliance approach where rather than saying, we can't do that because there's all these questions we can't answer. Instead, they've taken the approach of, we have a strategic objective as an organization and our job as a risk team or our job as a compliance team is to figure out a way that we can do these things while also making the organization safe, right? And that applies in a lot of different ways. You know, right now with coronavirus, I talk to organizations that are generally in one of two places. One set of banks and credit unions that I'll talk to, I'll say, how's it going? And they'll say, well, it's different. We're all working remotely and we never did that before, but we had a pandemic preparedness plan and it worked. Everybody had laptops. They took their work home. Within a couple of days, things were more or less back to normal. Our technology stack performed all the crush of like all the, all the online activity and all the sessions that we did in this huge spike. We managed to swallow that. So things are going pretty well. That's one end. The other end is the banks that are saying, we never thought this would happen. It was chaos for a week. We literally had people that were unplugging desktop computers from their houses and lugging them home and having to fix their bandwidth. And oh my gosh, we didn't you know, ever think this would happen. So instead of you know, finding a cloud provider, we had all our stuff on, you know, running on 10 year old servers in the, in the closet or whatever in the computer room. To me, that second group of banks and credit unions did not have a well-managed risk profile, right? And yet, invariably, when I ask why that was, they say, well, it was too risky to let, pe let people take laptops home. See my point? Right? It's all about sort of finding the strategic objective of the organization, and then risk and compliance should be um, targeting those things and targeting a safe 
and low risk way to achieve those objectives. Does that make sense as an answer? I, one of the things that you said that really resonates, you know, with me is this idea really around scoping that it, if we take this all or none mentality that it's like, oh, we could never do this because it creates such tremendous risk, whether it, it be a, a partnership or a new product or a new approach to digital or heaven forbid doing something crazy like going to cloud. If you just start to take some of the baby steps towards doing it until you get more comfortable, until you really have experienced what that risk is and allow you to turn up the spigot a little bit more, a little bit more, because I don't know any you know, bank, you know, that willingly just said, you know what, let's just rip the guts out of all of this. And we're going all cloud, all new vendors, all new experience all at once. You know, that's not a safe idea. But those who said, you know what, there's a whole bunch of benefits to cloud. Let's actually just take a little bit of this and let's go to cloud. Oh, that's working. Let's go up. Let's go up. Turn it up. Turn it up. They found themselves in a much better place. And the banks that were unwilling to try anything new, they're the ones that had the catastrophic risk that you just described, Rom. Right. So now you're forced to and you have to eat, you know, the whole cow show my farm roots as well all at once in order to get there. And, you know, that's a recipe for failure. Thanks, Jason. Reflecting back on some of the things that all you folks have been talking about, you know, Ram, we, you were just talking about, uh, you know, risk compliance and, and innovation there. And, you know, you have to have the right people ultimately, right? You have to have innovators in all areas of the firm. And getting the right people brings us to this broad topic we've discussed also with all of you, recruiting in the digital space. So Patrick, before, you know, I used, I touched on that uh, metaphor about the soil and the seeds. The soil can be fertile, but you still have to plant and grow the seeds, right? So your career has blossomed at Quantic so much so that American Banker, as Brian pointed out before, has recognized you as 2020 Digital Banker of the Year. You came to Quantic with diverse experience as CEO of Sales Group. How did Quantic know that you were the right big hire? And perhaps even more importantly for our viewers, how do other banks identify hire and just as importantly, integrate a Patrick Sells? I had to give most of that credit to uh, my partner, CEO, Steve Schnall. Um, I met Steve through a mutual friend and just started talking about technology, which was my background. I'd spent seven, eight years running a marketing technology company, helping companies figure out how do you use technology to do something new, but never in the world of banking. Um, and as Steve and I began thinking about what could be done differently, he got excited about it and was willing to take a pretty big risk in bringing me in. And I think the other thing that Steve did, which is probably pretty rare, is that that first year in particular, I essentially shared an office with them. And most of the time, he shared the other side of the desk and just sat there and got to learn from him how banks work. What is the OCC mean? How does a balance sheet work? Why can't I do this? And so it was both bringing in, I think in his case, outside talent, that new technology, and not saying, go sit over there now. You're my tech guy, box checked. I'm going to go move on to the other stuff that I want to do. It was, let me help you learn what's going on and why you can't do this and what does that mean? So I think for anyone who's thinking about how do you go find that talent um, and get them into your bank, you can't not help them understand the world of banking, right? You have to really spend a lot of time and you can't fundamentally outsource that as a CEO. 
You have to be the one to help that person know. And there's, we all know the horror stories of banks saying, well, I went out and recruited this one tech guy and you know, it didn't work. Well, probably because you didn't do your job to help them. And so that would be you know, one, one piece of advice I'd give to anyone who's looking to bring in someone new from the outside. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, it's, and you're still nuts for joining community banking. I don't know, but I'm just joking. Um, that's <laughs> such an interesting cocktails. story. What's that? Nah. It's okay. Um, it's such an interesting story that, that you told us about sitting with Steve at his desk and kind of learning banking as you went. Um, I was gonna transition back to Jill here. Uh, you're a huge influencer. Um, I believe it's uh, number one on ICBA's list of Twitter influencers. Uh, in fact, uh, you've spoken with us about the power of social media in attracting innovative talent. We, we talked about that yesterday, actually. Um, you've also told us about some of the challenges that you've faced, hiring too quickly, hiring the wrong people, people who weren't bold enough, as you put it. Um, what have you learned about hiring innovative talent that you can share with us? And how do you groom that talent for leadership and succession. Thanks. Um, actually, I, it's unfortunate because I think it's really challenging in our industry to find innovative talent. Um, we're a very checklist-oriented um, industry, and, and we don't reward the risk-taking. We don't reward experimentation. Um, I love the, um, the destination is the progress. Um, that, that is not the, the uh, mantra of banking. And, and so you have to be really thoughtful in hiring. Um, once you have an, an innovative culture and, and once people are aware of it, scores of people will want to work for you. Um, there's no problem with that. And they will have resumes that will blow each other away. I mean, it, it, it is incredible the, the level of talent from around the country, from the nation's largest banks that want to work at a one location, a 55 team member bank, the 300 million in assets. Um, so innovation will bring them. It's just deciphering who can fit into that. Early on, I hired the flashiest resumes and I hired fast and it was my decision and I didn't vet it. I didn't test them and they would come on board and they're like, where's the checklist? And like, well, dude, like you're, you're the one creating like the process. Like we, we don't inherit checklists. We look at how to how everybody should incrementally be incrementally improving the workflow of their area all the time. So, um, and building something is not easy. It is hard and it takes, um, a drive and a spirit. You don't have to be necessarily an innovative individual to start with, but you have to have this perseverance to see something through that is unknown. And so we really, um, I was hiring fast and then I was firing really slow. So I would invest in executive coaching and mentors and all kinds of classes and time and we didn't have a lot of success. So we flipped that. And so now we hire really slow and it's very methodical. We use a third party, we do tons of testing. They spend a lot of time with peers and our executive team, no matter what area they're going to. And that happens from a teller to the most senior level positions in our bank without exception. Um, and that's where we started to see some real movement. And we, the, the people that we started hiring were immediately running and causing us all to run faster. Um, and then on the flip side of that, if it's not working out, we call it fast. And, you know, with that 90 day period, if they're not 
getting it and it doesn't necessarily mean from a competency standpoint, but if they're not really understanding how we run here, then, um, then we, we write a letter of recommendation for them. I will call all my banking friends and, and try to find them a good spot and celebrate them and make it a good exit. Um, but as a result, we, you, I think if you haven't innovated a culture, you traditionally, I mean, if you look at any of the studies on the front end of that, you have a lot of turnover and then you have to be able to be willing to make some decisions um, and quickly make some changes if someone's not working out. And um, the talent is the key to this all. You, if Once you have the management buy-in of where you wanna go, um, filling the seats on the bus becomes the next most critical spot. Ram, when we spoke, we talked about one of the other, one of the challenges in integrating folks into community banking from outside of banking that one of, the, one of the primary challenges is identifying those who have the appetite to learn the ins and outs of community banking, uh, such as learning to deal with the considerable regulation in the industry uh, that bankers face. You suggested that banks could consider hiring professionals from vendors uh, who ha may have the domain knowledge of community banking, yet these are the very same companies that have arguably hindered innovation considerably with long locked in contracts how do you find innovation? How do you find innovative professionals among the very vendors that have stifled innovation? Gosh, you know, how, how to answer this incredibly loaded uh, question. Uh, so, no problem. yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's funny what Jill said about hiring really flashy resumes, and maybe that's a good place to start. Jim Baxley from Encino, who's, who, uh, who is one of the really smart people in this industry, I think, talks about sort of who the innovators are in banking, that you have the very big banks who move really slow and have really cumbersome bureaucracies, but they get so many resources that once they get the big ship turned, they can do just about anything they want. And then he talks about really small organizations that are very nimble and very focused on the right things that are not trapped in in giant sunk costs and can do a lot of things. And then he talks about this killing field in the middle of people who can hire very high quality talent from outside the industry. And unfortunately, a lot of those people come with really grandiose ideas and no real understanding of the reality of what bankers face in maintaining their day-to-day -day business, okay? So I am one of those people, sort of, I'm not saying my resume was that great when I joined, but Q2 is the first company in financial services that I've been. I mean, I had been a business customer as a startup entrepreneur in the software space, and I had been a consumer, obviously. But my, com my background was primarily technology and e-commerce best practices. So when I was hired by Q2, my question, even during my interview was, was everything in financial services feels like Amazon, you know, 12 years ago, why is that? Does this company help with that? Oh, you do? Okay, well, that sounds cool. And that was kind of my starting point. I'm not suggesting that people coming from vendors to banks are automatically a good fit. I think sometimes the risk of that relationship is that they're basically establishing a captive pipeline for whatever vendor they came from. So you got to be very selective about who you uh, would hire. But I will suggest that vendors have a couple of advantages. Number one, they have a broad view of what works in the ecosystem or the people that you're looking for, meaning they talk to a lot of banks, they talk to a lot of credit unions, they talk to a lot of under vendors, they know what works. They know what doesn't work and how the big vendors negotiate. I mean, I'm not sure that 
that it's a contract. I don't really think it's a long-term contracts questions. I mean, yes, the contracts on the core side are way too, too long. Like we agree on that. They should be coterminous, et cetera. But it's less a contracts issue and more a data uh, I saw that, Patrick. I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. But I think it's really more a data conversion and integration, meaning that even if you solve the contract issue, you've still got to get to the cost of deconversion and the cost of moving the data over and making all the infrastructure interoperable. And that's what sometimes people forget that people in the industry know that the hard part is getting the systems to talk to each other. But the real sort of sweet spot that vendor people occupy, I think, is not needing to sit at someone's knee for six months at the beginning to understand banking or understand the regulatory climate and being able to come in with, as Jason said, a realistic understanding of the baby steps and the progress that the bank can make towards cloud or towards open banking or towards you know, digital onboarding or whatever the, the poll star is on that day. You know, and I think in, the, you know, in this climate where coronavirus has taken digital transformation from wherever it was on the list up a few notches, right? If it was number three, now it's number one. If it was number six, now it's number three. People from the vendor side are typically going to be able to have a more realistic understanding of not what is possible, but what is achievable within the strategic horizon of the bank that hires them. Thanks, Ron. Um, I agree with Patrick about the contracts, by the way. <laughs> that sounds like a whole other topic uh, for another webinar. Yeah, that could uh, derail everything right here if we go down that road. <laughs> I just had a quick, uh, uh, I wanted to wrap back around to Patrick because there's some um, chatting going on and uh, he mentioned something that was actually very unique. Um, Patrick, you mentioned that most banks in essence, and you remind me of when I was a banker, um, they don't have core values beyond the basics. And there's a lot of hiring that we see sometimes where it's, you know, skill set over culture fit because they need it. I just wonder if you could elaborate on that thought. Yeah, I think, and this is not, I think, unique to banks. I think it's unique to a lot of companies that we come up with these core values that are really permission to play. And, you know, but we hang them out to like, they uniquely separate us like, oh, integrity at this bank is different. This is why you want to work here versus any other bank. Well, we all have integrity. And if you don't have integrity, you're probably going to get fired. And that doesn't also tell you anything in the interview process or as you're getting to know someone, will they be the right fit, right? And I think that's something Jill was talking about is do you find that right fit? And so that's one of the things we worked really hard on was how do you build out four, we built out, we ended up with four unique core values. And then we can interview for that. We can reward people to that and we can train for that. I shared one of them, which was progress, not perfection. The other one is the idea of try it on. It's like when you go into a department store and you see six shirts, try it on. If you don't like it, move on, try on the next one. There's no, you don't need to feel bad about that and be okay with change. You know, and sometimes in a meeting we'll say, Hey guys, we're going to try something on and let, that doesn't mean we're going to do it. It just means we're going to talk about it and don't, don't automatically start shooting down all the reasons why we can't do it. Um, another one is say cheese. It's the idea like, we you know, if someone pulls out your camera, you, if you, everyone smiles. What if a bank, it was actually fun to work at when you saw your colleagues, you smiled, or when you talked to a customer, you made them smile, right? And then the last one is know the goal. In other words, we don't want to just go do something because we're trying to, or if we're having a disagreement about what's the answer between maybe different departments, can we stop back and say, guys, what's the goal? What's the outcome that we want? And that oftentimes will help, you know, diffuse tension 
and get the silo mindset that's so common in banks and credit unions to break down because it's no longer about am I right or you are right. It's what's the output that we want together. And so there's an example of our four core values that are probably different than most banks out there and how we've been able to use it to attract talent and build a day-to-day life at the company that is uniquely different. Thanks, Patrick. Jason, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, you know, if you feel free to, to build on anything you've, you've heard from, from Patrick, I know that culture fit is something that you, you consider extremely important, but there was a, a question that came out of some discussions we've had recently um, about the challenges that banks face that are resource constrained and can't invest in a chief innovation officer, someone like Patrick. Uh, they can't have their own office of innovation, skunk works, et cetera, which is really the vast majority of, of, um, of community banks. Who at a minimum though, does a bank need to have in the organization to develop and execute an effective digital strategy? What kind of knowledge and expertise do you need if at Alloy Labs on the other side of the fence, so to speak, in a partner? What does, what does an organization need to have? What person do they have, need to have to be able to effectively communicate with you and other Alloy Labs partners? You know, that is a good question. And frankly, this idea of we're too resource constrained is a pretty lazy one by a <laughs> lot of banks that some of the most impactful innovation that we see is being driven by the frontline employees right? It's that uh, teller that Jill has who has an idea because they're seeing the pain that a customer is feeling right there on a day-to-day basis and says, hey, why don't we? So at a minimum, what they need is actually the, the group that can collect the what might we do to help alleviate this pain, to take the ideas and to say, okay, let's map this out. Let's play it forward and say, if we were to put some resources against this, what do we actually want to test to validate it's a good idea? And what do we think the value is? Because if it isn't connected right away with value, if it's just digitization or innovation for innovation's sake, that is going to fall apart really quickly. So if you have a group and it needs to involve uh, multiple functions across the organization, and it needs some level of senior enough leadership that can say yes to things, and it needs actually some money set aside for it because if it has to go beg for money every single time, it, you know, it's not going to get there. Think of it as the, you can spend up to X that can be decided by this group to make an investment. And it needs functions that cross over. You know, it needs someone who understands technologically, hey, with this new Q2 platform, what kinds of capabilities did this open up for us? It needs someone on the compliance team or risk to be able to say, oh, here's how we'll scope it so that it's an appropriate level of risk that we're willing to take on. And it needs someone who owns the customer that says, this is why this is good for them and we're gonna derive value. And so you don't need to hire someone new for that. You just need a group that comes together and is committed not just to sitting around the table and talking about new technology, but collecting these ideas and acting on it. So just to chime in on that um, and kind of going back to that original analogy about the culture versus the tech. I, I think that is almost part of what I'm trying to talk about and that I don't know that a bank needs to be able to hire a chief innovation officer or set up a, an innovation skunk works. And it's, can you, what you can do that doesn't cost anything is go change your culture. 
stop now and start to think about what is unique about us? How can we behave? How do we want to behave? And as Jill, you know, read a great example here, she has got this tiny bank in Oklahoma. She's got talent all over the country wanting to come work for her, right? She didn't need a Patrick or a tech person. She built a culture that was unique and attracted people. And that's the thing I would tell anyone out there to do is you can start there and it doesn't cost you anything. Just to, to play off of that real fast, it's not a responsibility as a CEO you can delegate. You can't delegate innovation. You can't delegate um, digital commitment. You can't delegate culture. I mean, it has to permeate everyone. I mean, we can't go hire some specialist or even a consultant as this small bank that we are. It has to be part of the DNA of every single person and that the CEO cannot remove themselves from that conversation or be intimidated by it. They have to lean into it. They have to learn it. They have to own it and they have to lead it. Thanks, Joe. That actually brings me to a, a related topic. Um, something that we discussed with you specifically is the relationships that, that banks have with third parties and the CEO's involvement, not just conventional fintechs, but with, uh, with consultants, with Alloy Labs, those relationships. You told us that partnership can mean many different things from buying an off-the-shelf product where the meaning of partnership is a little bit um, stretched uh, to working with a vendor that does fully customized work and everything in between. How do you identify the right partners and describe as you did in our last conversation, how you maintain relationships with fintechs? And we found that very interesting, such that they're there for you to, at the right time to meet the right specific need. And how has also being part of Alloy Labs helped you in these efforts? Uh, thank you for that. And, and, and I'll use an army analogy since we're gonna talk a little bit about Alloy Labs because Jason and I speak that same language, both having army backgrounds. Um, but you don't prepare for battle while you're in the fight. You, you prepare for battle in peacetime. And I think that is a lot uh, whenever we think about collaboration partnerships with FinTech is that you have to be um, cultivating these relationships even when you're not needing technology, even when you're not seeking some gap. This is, you know, this should be part of your community and your network is inclusiveness in the, those digital bankers that are progressive, that you know, getting to be their friends as well as the FinTech community in general. So then whenever you do have an opportunity, you know, um, whenever you see a gap or a service that you need, or you see a sexy new uh, trinket that you want to incorporate into your bank, um, you know not only who provides these types of services, but who aligns with you uh, from a culture standpoint. For us, we don't like to buy things off the shelf. We have to do that sometimes. And Q2 may be a good example of it's kind of off the shelf that you get to customize and then plug stuff that you develop right into it. Um, another is uh, we've done some stuff like our, what we did with our patent where we developed some stuff internally and then we contracted with someone to get us to the point where they basically just served us and what we needed. But what we really love is whenever two people come together and we're like, I generally have an idea of this working and some FinTech is excited by the same idea and we come in and we collaborate and we make something brand new. That's what we really like. Um, but I'll, going back to kind of relationship piece of it, we, had, we have been begging to be part of a food truck uh, festival in downtown Oklahoma City, the largest in the nation. But they already had a large partnership with a large bank, and they, did, they could not take on another um, sponsor. We didn't have any money either, so that was another reason why they didn't want us. 
Um, but they called me on a Wednesday and the festival was on the Friday and they said, we need, um, if you can bring us ATMs, the big bank can't bring these ATMs this Friday. If you can get us ATMs on Friday, you guys can have the lead partnership without any sponsorship, without any cash exchange. And I had had lunch in the months before with a gentleman who did outsource ATMs. And so I committed to doing that before I knew that I could. And we don't have like a supply of ATMs in some closet somewhere. And I was able to pick up the phone and call a guy that, that I had built a relationship with that without an end in mind. But I had that card in my pocket. And we were able to get those ATMs there by Friday. And it's not traditional innovation, but it's that nimbleness to be able to act when you see the opportunity arise. And so that's why I think we'll miss out. It's not so much going through a convention and taking cards and get, being uh, in the drawing for the big prize at the end of the convention. It's really spending the time with everyone to really understand what, are, what relationships potentially could come in the future, um, but that right now are only serving the purpose of understanding one another. I wanna build on Jill's uh, peacetime preparation because you know, when we talk about this developing innovative culture and this innovation muscle, you know, this can be practiced. In fact, we do it quite a bit when we work individually with banks to talk about the processes we've developed. And then they go actually, you know, let's go work on this. Let's do lunch and learns around. Let's talk about the pains, gains, and jobs to be done. One of our frequent frameworks for a specific customer segment. And I love one other Alloy Labs member took um, the president's weekend holiday that Monday and said, hey, we're going to be doing this innovation brainstorming where we're going to use some of the frameworks that we had learned because a lot of you are participating with Alloy Labs and know, you know other banks talking about this. We're going to take this Monday and anyone who wants to come and participate and do this brainstorming about customers and how can we better serve them with either the things we have or the gaps we have, would you believe they had 300 people show up on their day off, right? They could have taken that as a, as a day off to go basically practice innovation. And now when it gets into the, hey, we're actually looking to employ a new technology or launch Q2 or an MX and you know, some of these things, they actually have a better idea of doing it and they've done it you know, together in the peacetime. And so when it's real and the bullets are flying, they know how to handle it. Thanks, Jason. Um, that, and that, I, I, that word nimble comes up in conversations like this all the time. One thing I'll say, I worked at some large banks, really large banks. And when I came to the community bank world, I was just amazed. You know, generally, if you can think it, you can do it. There's a little less barrier to entry although there are obvious cultural uh, issues. Um, Ram, I wanted to go to you next uh, on a question about, um, you've explained how important consultants can be helping their clients to understand the ecosystem, to understand how different products play with each other and to ensure that the right framework and platform is in place to ensure that FinTech products plug in and work with each other in concert. What are the risks for banks that choose to go it alone, that neither have a consultant to guide them, uh, nor someone in-house, like a Patrick Sells? Well, I mean, the, the, the obvious risk is that the initiative fails, or, the, or a whole set of initiatives fail. I mean, I, I think there's a difference, and actually maybe this extends the, to a little bit of the previous conversation between partnership and vendor and a vendor relationship, right? A vendor is selling you a product that does a thing. And as a buyer, 
the, the bank has to evaluate whether or not not only that works, but what their exit strategy is from that, uh, that purchase or that, or that uh, effort. So, I mean, I think the risk here is, is pretty simple to define, which is that the parameters of that decision were not well-defined, that they didn't go into that initiative with a good understanding of what they were doing. I, I guess I'm not making the case for vendors and I think, or consultants, and I think that that can take a lot of forms. You know, I've seen, um, you know, a number of financial institutions who will choose whatever their favorite vendor is and then kind of rely on them for good advice that they kind of give out for free. In fact, one of the things, you know, like one of the, you know, honest practical piece of advice I give people in these, in these forums is when you guys make a big technology decision, you should be evaluating the team based on the strength of the, of the relationship management team and what you can glean from your discussions with other customers about how valuable that is. Because in many cases, your relationship management team from your key vendors are acting as consultants about what else works and are plugged into the industry in a number of different ways that can help out. So I, I think the risk um, is that you wind up with a failed project um, without, without good understanding. And that's not to say that they can't go it alone. That's not to say they can't be successful if they go it alone. You know, I mean, I can think of organizations that do very well without the help of consultants and without relying on their vendors to tell them what to do. But what they all have in common is they have really strong CEOs and really strong boards who've built an innovation mindset and a culture of detail and solutions focus that makes them essentially their own consulting shop. And they approach it the same way that consultants do with very rigorous, very data-driven approaches to everything they do. Thanks, Ron. On a, on a related note, Patrick, uh, we've had a conversation, speaking about advice, advice giving, advice solicitation, um, you've talked about, you know, Quantic's success has been so visible to other banks, frankly, and, and your success, that from what you've described, other banks frequently reach out to you for advice, and you've talked about the opportunities that Quantic might have in the B2B space. Can you tell us more about where you see those opportunities how can Quantic be a thought leader in digital banking? Yeah, so I think I've been working on kind of this concept over the last three or four months and have batted around a few people even on this call, but it's the idea of what I say is a true digital bank, right? What if, there was, what if a bank actually was able to help enable other banks to become digital? We've abdicated so much of this to fintechs and, you know, and I think there's this like fear of we're competing against ourselves as banks. We don't want to help other banks, but we need to wake up and realize we've already lost that war, you know, and we need to start to work together. And how much better would it be? How much more comfortable would I be buying account opening technology from another bank? Because I know that bank's not going to blow up. I know that bank's not, those founders aren't going to quit. I can trust that bank, right? And so could you begin to develop a world in which banks developed technology and sold it to each other. And you can, there's so much more stability in that that you don't have to try to teach them regulations and compliance. It actually works. So we, we fix our culture. We change the reputation of the industry. We get talent in here. We start building the cool shit that we need. And then we go sell it to other banks. And together as an industry, we, we stop abdicating our role in the community and to consumers. Jason, did you have something you wanted to add? 
Well, I can. Um, you know, I, one of the interesting things about Alloy Labs is we're not a vendor to the banks. It's banks serving and working with other banks. That's been one of the interesting aha moments you could watch as every new member kind of comes into it. And it's like, what can you do for me? And then they realize there's this give get that it's as much about as I give information and my ability to take information in those relationships and the ability to oh, I can't be the pretty little snowflake. This is exact words from head of risk at uh, one of our larger members. And the aha is like, wait a second. Why do I think my vendor due diligence process is so much better than Jill's due diligence process that I have to you know, go recreate it? Or Patrick's, right? We all answer to the same regulators or you know, variants of them. We need to start reinventing our business model as banks and need to quit looking like every other bank out there. The challenge is, you know, if you go to a hundred bank websites, 99% of them are going to look pretty much the same in terms of what they offer, their capabilities, even the types of vendors they do. And so this idea that Patrick said about, we need to do a better job of figuring out what do we do uniquely that others don't, and that will attract talent to us and it'll attract customers to us. And then how do I work with other banks that don't necessarily fit that gap? Instead of thinking my competition is the bank across the street, how do I think about solving new customer needs that no one else is meeting out there and I'm uniquely suited to do. Thanks, Jason. And, and just to kind of go back to recruitment, because you touched on it right there, um, I just wanted to open it up uh, in terms of attracting uh, 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 talent. What is maybe a benefit that you're offering that other banks might not be offering? I've heard Patrick and Jill both mention things about this. I was just curious. I think a lot of the bankers that are listening in on this webinar would like to know. Working with both of them, can I say what I observed that they both offer that they didn't share? In addition to kind of mission and vision that they did a good job of articulating, they both offer empowerment. And I think that is really important to move fast. And also the people you want to come work at the bank and to drive this. Like Jill said, those aren't the people who are like, hey, here's a checklist that was developed you know, 15 years ago. Your job is go ch check these boxes you know, for the next two to three years. You're, not, you're gonna select the wrong group if that's how you're treating them. That's a good, I mean, it's a good response. The empowerment piece is huge. Uh, is there anything, Jill, I'm not sure if you wanted to chime in. Yeah, I can talk a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of traditional benefits we could talk about that we've, we've stolen from other industries. But I think one thing, we were really trying to ignite this entrepreneurial spirit in our, with our team. And so we started a, um, a side hustle factory is what we call it. So we have a, an old branch that's just a block away from this other, our main branch. And there was empty real estate. We converted it to a co-working space for our customers. And with that, we have a room dedicated so that um, team members can apply for, and we have several participants in it right now, have had a lot of success with it where they can apply for their, if they make soaps on the side or their, um, one was um, shipped, um, has subscription service for black literature and um, that we, and we provide some seed money. We provide some marketing support. We give them a free membership to our co-working space, assign them a member, uh, a mentor, um, they usually get inputted into a, um, um, uh, an incubator that's here that they go as an entrepreneur residence and then groomed by that um, VC into going into an incubator that's here in, in Oklahoma City. And that has really helped them see the challenges that our customers face that are starting businesses that are trying to sustain businesses. It's a very small investment 
from our standpoint, but had immediate impact. It also gave us a lot of legitimacy in the VC startup community. We were at the table at that point in every conversation um, with, with legitimacy, not, not with money. And um, it was like we're, our voice was missing from the table if we weren't there. And so it was a huge impact to our culture. Our, cust our um, team members really appreciated it. We do a, a food truck festival ourselves um, whenever there's not COVID. Um, eight times a year, 50,000 people come to downtown Edmond for a bank party. And if you're selling a product or service and you work at our bank, you get a free booth there. So that's just one of the small things that we do. Jill, it just sounds like a fun place to work all in all. So it's a lot of passion there. Well, we also had the relentless pursuit of excellence. And I think that's what you see innovative cultures that are successful is that it is a exhausting place to work. Thrilling, <laughs> fun, yeah, wears you out. So you don't have to worry about sleeping at night because we'll wear you out. <laughs> nice. You have good health care then, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to open the, the, the floor. We only have about five minutes left in our allotted time. Um, just to you know, go back to any points that were made, or uh, I think uh, Patrick had a thought that he wanted to mention. Yeah, just <clears throat> one last thought on this idea of you know, coming together as an industry to actually try to innovate and work together because the competition is no longer each other. You know, just a, a thought out there that you know, is if banks want to do something like online account opening or you want to change your mobile or peer-to-peer, consider finding other banks that either are doing it well or who also want to do it and go invest in each other. Like we can work together to actually do this and we don't need to put as much capital together as like a FinTech does because a FinTech has to go raise all this capital to pay a bank for access to it and then to live through the sales cycle. What a tremendous inefficient use of money, right? As banks and credit unions, we could do this together much cheaper and probably go much faster because the, the technology is being created within our framework. It's not the poo-poo on fintechs, but I do think there's a role for them. It's just beginning to rethink how we approach technology as an industry. Yeah, and actually, if I could, if I could jump onto the back of that, Patrick, I think 10 years ago, you were right that banking was not a sexy industry for top talent, especially in the innovation side. And I think that's true. And the, you know, the culture that people like Jill or that Brian Unruh at NBKC are establishing is attractive. But here's the thing. You know, because of the successes of the Betterments and the Acorns and the Squares and, and Credit Karmas and everybody, FinTech made financial services kind of a sexy industry. And what I think and what I experience on a daily basis is that you guys don't give your industry enough credit. It is attractive because as that cohort of talent becomes more mature, they are realizing that there's nothing, to your point about capital, Patrick, that they want to do as entrepreneurs that is probably not easier to do from within a bank that is appropriately led. And so if I could leave anything to this audience with talent, which is that top talent is absolutely available to you if you're willing to, at a tactical level, maybe let them work remotely more often than you're used to, but then also establish a vision uh, and a culture for innovation and, and, uh, and progress that's compelling. Just with that, give, give props to Jill and your bank for getting a patent for technology. That's cool. You don't hear many banks doing that. That's awesome. Right on. We haven't gotten it yet. We filed for it. So close enough. <laughs> okay. We'll go for it. Patent pending. There you go. Well, just about to, to wrap up here. I don't know if anyone had any final thoughts, Jason or uh, anyone else. Nope. All right. 
the point so, of collaboration, I would just say that it's so important for us to all to be accessible. And um, I put my cell phone out there and I really, it, it's easy to find, contact me if I can ever collaborate with anything. I mean, I love Patrick and what he's saying, but we need to be in contact with one another and don't you know, be sure and receive messages as well as give them so that we can find ways to collaborate going forward. Yeah, terrific. So on that note, we've reached our allotted time. I wanna thank our panelists for the contributions uh, today and allowing us to hear your perspectives and best practices on adopting a culture that embraces technology. Uh, Ram, Jill, Jason, Patrick, thank you so much um, for, for joining. And to our viewers, feel free to reach out to myself or Steve Cohen at the Trevelyan Group for further questions or information. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much, folks. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Appreciate you guys.